Good morning. As you are thinking about what to do with your worship folder, I want to encourage you to, as you leave today, not put that in a place where you'll lose it. Uh, Take it home with you. Uh, I think you'll see after the message that um, Pastor Dave uh, and our team has worked together to craft a a service with song and scripture that that fits with the scripture passage. We hope to do that every week. Um, But I hope that you'll use that even as you reflect on the sermon, as you reflect on our time here together this morning, perhaps even in family worship and your own meditation. uh, Let that be a guide for you if you need some help there. So that's... uh, free and not part of the sermon. Um, so let's get started. Um, if you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 12. And as you've just been seated, let's stand again. And as I read our preaching passage for this morning, Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 12, you can find that in your pew Bible, on your worship folder, or however you access the word these days. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word to us. I pray now as we come to it that we would be under your word, um, that you would show us Christ even in his own words, and help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be changed, that you would teach us, that it might be for the building up of your church, that it might be for the salvation of the lost and for the glory of Christ, our risen King. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, it's the 4th of July weekend, and retailers love this weekend and most holiday weekends uh, because they want you to come to their stores and buy stuff, stuff that that they want you to think that you need. Uh, And so they come up with all these deals, right? And let's say you go this weekend, because we've all been there, it's just a deal that's too good to be true. You're getting ready to close the deal, wallet is coming out of your pocket, and you know the stare, right, from the salesperson. You're standing there, and it's almost like a showdown is about to begin, and you know what question is coming. You want the extended warranty with that? And immediately, uh, you start to wonder, well, is all my research true? Kind of the angel of confirmation and the devil of doubt pops out on your shoulders, and you say things like, warranties are good, I need one. The other one says, no, you don't, you'll be just fine. On the other side, it says, you know, as soon as I walk out of here, this thing's going to break. And then the other side says, no, you've done all your research. Consumer Reports says that this is rated highly for longevity and reliability. And we're just reminded, you know, that the struggle is real for the warranty. But the psychology of the warranty is what fascinates me in some ways. Uh, Research suggests that 
the decision on a warranty largely is based on and depends on the mood of the buyer towards risk aversion. After all, what's the point of a warranty anyway? Uh, Besides the absurd markup and the benefit to the company, the warranty on a car, a phone, a mattress, a coffee maker, refrigerator, whatever you're buying this weekend or not buying, uh, whether it's the 30-day extended warranty or the unicorn-like lifetime warranty, uh, the guarantee, the point is to reduce risk in the, in the mind of the consumer, to provide a backup plan, you know, in case things get a little sideways when you get home. Warranties have always struck me as a bit funny, even as I've purchased my share of them. A few things last for a lifetime. You know, because they don't make them like they used to, or just because that's the way life is. On the buyer's side, we simply want to preserve our investment on whatever it is we're, we're purchasing for as long as possible. And so it is with all of life. It's about risk aversion and preservation. It would be great if life itself came with some kind of warranty. But life on earth, as we all know, is temporal. And the clock is ticking, Right? until it doesn't anymore. And then we'll ask ourselves, what has mattered most? Is it what we spend our time purchasing and researching? And those things, of course, are, are fine and good. But as we look at Luke chapter 12 this summer and these surprising words of Jesus, as it were, Jesus is getting our eyes off in this entire chapter. He's getting our eyes off of the temporal in many respects, and on to the eternal. He's saying that even those things that are temporal, even though they matter a lot, some more than others, he's saying that they don't matter most. Even the things that we'd like to have guarantees on. And he's directing our attention to the eternal. He's telling us what matters most in eternity is also what matters most now, too. And in this morning's passage, we're going to see that what matters most in eternity is based on not what, but who we confess matters most to us, namely Jesus. But you know, we have trouble with that. Sure, if you're a Christian, you probably know this cognitively. You know that's what we're supposed to do, tell people about Jesus, proclaim him, acknowledge him before men. But we get distracted. We're busy. Just don't think of it. How many times have you walked away from a conversation and, oh, I should have said whatever. Somebody asked me a question and I didn't step up. Maybe it's that we came to Jesus in hopes that he would, he would give us a warranty on this life. If I became a Christian, life will be easy. And now I've started to proclaim, proclaim Christ a little bit and things are getting a little dicey. It's not what I thought it would be. Culture is shifting Maybe I'm thinking about cashing in on that return policy, see if it's still good. Well, my aim this morning is simple. We're going to walk through this passage, these surprising words of Jesus here in verses 8 through 12. Uh, We're going to see that Jesus calls us to this eternal perspective in the midst of this temporal life. And because of this eternal perspective where our eyes will be fixed on him, therefore, we can be encouraged all the more in our confession of him And trust in the help of the Holy Spirit, even in the face of adversity. So encouragement and trust. Encouragement and trust. Because there's no option of giving up. Giving up is not an option. 
Because you've actually, in Christ, been guaranteed the greatest eternal return on Christ's investment in you. And so first, let's look at verses 8 through 10 and see this encouragement to confess Jesus as Messiah. Verses 8 through 10. And Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And what we have here in these few verses that are beginning is a choice and a warning. A choice and a warning. We have the choice to acknowledge Jesus before men or deny him. And we have a warning to not blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, for it carries with it grave and eternal consequences. And if you've been following along in Luke chapter 9, doing the, the Bible reading plan, that the church uh, that we've been on since January, you'll know that we're, we're doing our gospel reading right now in the gospel of Luke, and these verses are, are coming soon. Uh, and so hopefully this series will be a help to you as uh, we make sense of this. But this passage here actually has echoes of previous verses in Luke chapter 9, and I'll mention that more in a minute. But at first glance, we might wonder how, again, these words are encouraging Uh, Because it sounds pretty shocking and surprising. And that's the truth is, that's because they are. Uh, They're meant to give us a jolt, to cause our eyes to come up off of the things that are temporal and look towards the eternal. But perhaps you've experienced the use of these verses as ammunition. Uh, Not so much as an encouragement, but something to tear you down in the midst of uh, perhaps backsliddenness. I don't even know if that's a word. But being backslidden even in your um, evangelism and to beat you up over the head. And to try to uh, motivate you towards evangelism all the more uh, in a not-so-helpful way. But we want to make sense of these in the context and see that that's not Jesus' point. And we want to move towards encouragement. uh, And to do that, we need to define our terms because there's a lot of tricky terms here. Um, And so I want to tackle them as they're presented in the flow of the text. And so first, what does it mean to acknowledge the Son of Man? Well, the Son of Man clearly is Jesus. He refers to himself in this way in this passage and throughout the New Testament. But even if you've been around church for a while, this phrase, this title of Christ uh, himself, it can be pretty confusing. Um, This is a title that's used 84 times in the Gospels by Jesus about himself. The only other place in the New Testament that the Son of Man is used is in Acts chapter 7, interestingly, uh, by Stephen, who was martyred for his faith, Uh, as he stood before a synagogue, rulers, and authority, and he's confessing what Jesus is talking about here. He's confessing Jesus as the Son of Man. But this title of the Son of Man, um, while it is unique, it was first used as a messianic term in the Old Testament by Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. It reads like this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, meaning to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And so this is the title that Jesus uses for himself, and it's often one that he uses in front of the Pharisees who were, as mentioned in Luke chapter 11, the keepers of the law. 
referred to as lawyers even. They were the ones that held the law over the people, the law of God. And so when speaking with an Old Testament reference like this about himself in a messianic way, Even at his trial where Jesus said, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. When he says that to the Pharisees, it invokes a very visceral response, even to the point of killing Jesus. And it would be unmistakable to them, even to the point where they accuse him, ironically enough, given our passage this morning, of blasphemy. So the Son of Man is a reference from Daniel, and it's referring to Jesus himself in a messianic manner. So what does it mean then to acknowledge him in this way before men? Well, this is about testimony and witness, and this will be important throughout the rest of this passage. It's about testimony and witness. So to acknowledge or to confess Jesus as Lord in a genuine way, as one scholar puts it, is a public proclamation that commits oneself to him with a promise in word or deed. In other words, this is about a total life commitment. This isn't only about a a one-time statement that you make about who Jesus is, like mental assent. This is about a total life confession and commitment to Jesus as Lord. I mentioned before that this has echoes of Luke chapter 9. And in the context of Luke chapter 9, where Jesus makes a very similar statement, that is within the context of where Jesus encourages and instructs his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. And so this whole idea of confessing Christ is one of totality of holistic living before Christ as the Son of Man. And in contrast, to deny the Son of Man or to speak against him, as we see in verse 10, is a rejection before men in word and deed of Jesus as Lord. Therefore, based on a person's confession or denial of the Son of Man, the Son of Man, Jesus, will then give an equivalent testimony about that person before the angels of God at the eternal judgment. So who are the angels of God? Well, this is an eternal court in heaven. Again, keeping with this idea of testimony and witness. Jesus is showing us the contrast of what it is to stand before the court of men and before the court of heaven. It's the, continuing the idea of the temporal versus the eternal and what matters most. So the angels to whom Jesus refers likely have a role as witnesses to Jesus' confession in this heavenly court setting. The entire setting here is one of justice. You have testimony, so you have an acknowledgement and a denial. You have witnesses in the angels of God, and you have judgment, forgiveness, or otherwise, pardon, or guilt. And so if you've been tracking with us through uh, this series in the last couple of weeks, Pastor Ben Painter and uh, Eric Channing have, have gotten us to this point so far. We need to consider our context here immediately uh, in chapter 12. Jesus has just finished really giving it to the Pharisees with the woe to you statements at the end of chapter 11, exposing their temporal view uh, of, of, of life and exposing their hypocrisy, saying that you are, you are uh, only focused on the outside, which is temporal, and not focused on what will matter most. And then he comes into chapter 12 by turning his attention to his disciples saying, you too, us too. All will be laid bare. All hypocrisy and all sin will be brought to light. That was Pastor Ben's sermon from a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, we see the the trajectory of, of that hypocrisy being uncovered in fear. 
It's a scary thing to have your hypocrisy uncovered before the eternal God, right? Well, do you fear him or do you fear men? And that was the sermon from last week. And so when we come to this verse this morning, these verses this morning, we see how this is unfolding in the eternal courtroom. The angels of God are hearers of the testimony that Jesus is going to give either for or against those on trial before God. So in verse 10, in the same sense of the courtroom testimony, uh, then Jesus kind of, he, well, not kind of, he ratchets it up and says, you may speak against the Son of Man and still have the offer of forgiveness, but if you speak against or blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you have lost the hope of forgiveness. And so what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and why will that not be forgiven? Well, I had somebody ask me about that this week. They knew I was preparing this sermon, and there's a friend of mine who's doing his Ph.D., uh, on the Gospel of Luke. So I was inquiring of him, what, what do you think about blaspheming the Holy Spirit? And he sat there and thought for a second, and he looked at me said, don't do it. <laughs> it's profound, right? <laughs> so we'll just move right on to point number two then. <laughs> but of course, uh, we need to look at what that means uh, further. Um, it's easy just to say don't do it, and we all... F- we all know that from Scripture this is something we shouldn't do. Um, but let's look at what this means, and then we'll find some application. First, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, judging by your laughter, isn't an easy concept to understand. It's one that's been debated for centuries. And as I could find, there are at least five options uh, for what this can mean. And I want to move through these quickly. This isn't the only place in Scripture where... Uh, the blaspheming the Holy Spirit is referenced, and we, we know that this passage doesn't exist on its own. It exists in the context of Luke, it exists in the context of the Gospels, and the totality of Scripture. So that must inform how we view this. And so Mark chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 12 are other places where blaspheming the Holy Spirit is mentioned. And so a first option based on those passages, probably something that's familiar to you, is that blaspheming the Holy Spirit could mean attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan rather than to the Holy Spirit. Uh, So that's one option. Another possibility is outright apostasy or renouncing the faith, which would include the denial of the work of the Holy Spirit. A third view, some think, would be speaking against the apostles. The apostles at Pentecost were given the Holy Spirit as power and authority and therefore, in some, uh, some circles, it would be if you're rejecting the word of the apostles, you're re- and therefore rejecting the word of the Holy Spirit. And that would be akin to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. A fourth view is simply, uh, based on our passage, is a failure to acknowledge the message that the Spirit supplies when brought before these rulers and synagogues and leaders, uh, as it's mentioned here. But I think each of these, uh, while nuanced, are in some ways not looking at the picture uh, as a whole. And so a fifth view, uh, which could include each of those, would uh, is one that I would put before you this morning, uh, takes into consideration our setting, and I'd define it like this. So blaspheming the Holy Spirit is an unrelenting and unrepentant opposition to the work of the Holy Spirit as a witness to the person and work of Jesus. Say that again. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is an unrelenting and unrepentant opposition to the work of the Holy Spirit 
as a witness to the person and work of Jesus. Now, as I've said in our context, this is about the role of the witness of the Holy Spirit. So in Old Testament law, a second witness was needed to corroborate uh, any person giving an account in a court. Uh, and so as the Son of Man has come as, to give witness about himself as the Messiah, as the Savior, one might instantly reject the Son of Man as a singular witness, as a singular testimony about himself. But as the Holy Spirit gives inner witness to a person to confirm the truth of Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of Man, as the Savior, a rejection then of the second witness, the Holy Spirit, is a refusal of the completed testimony about Jesus. So nothing can be forgiven since God's plan has been holistically rejected. That rejection could include an attributing of the Holy Spirit's work to the work of Satan. It could include apostasy, and those, that makes room for the other gospel accounts as well. But Jesus makes it clear that this sinful denial carries with it an eternal verdict. Now, what does all of that mean? How is this an encouragement, after all, to proclaim Jesus as your Lord? You might be thinking, have I committed this unpardonable sin? Have I refused to give testimony about Jesus in a way that puts me out of eternal favor with God? Let me answer your question with another question. This morning, do you recognize that you are a sinner and want to be forgiven? Is there within your heart, within your mind, a, a desire for forgiveness? If so, then that is a sure sign that you have not committed such an unpardonable sin. Those who have an unrelenting opposition to the Holy Spirit don't seek forgiveness as they are unrepentant and therefore won't be forgiven. Just as the one who speaks against Jesus, much like Peter in his denial, has the hope of forgiveness, which is brought on by repentance. But what if you still worry? Again, do you want to follow Jesus and be forgiven? Then you haven't committed such a sin. How do I know, and how can I say that with such confidence? Well, let me walk you through the logic of the gospel, and then I have an illustration. According to Scripture, there are many roles of the Holy Spirit. One of those roles John 16, 8, says that when he, meaning the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin. Now what's the point of conviction? Just to make you feel bad? Just to make you aware of something of which you can't be forgiven? Well, the point of conviction is repentance. Romans 2, 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Friend, it's the kindness and patience of God that you are even convicted or made known of your sin. Even as we have all at some point denied Christ in some way and yet led to repentance because God desires that all men be saved. 2 Peter 3.9, and none should perish, 
And so the logic follows that once you are led to repentance because of God's love and his kindness to you, once you are led to conviction and then to the point of repentance, a confession takes place. First John tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It is a just act of God to forgive you because of the atoning work of Christ on the cross, the gospel to forgive the repentant sinner who confesses faith in Jesus. So if you are here this morning and feeling despair because of, of, of a fear of having lost eternal favor, you've lost your chance with God, be encouraged. Conviction, even being within the hearing of this message, is a sure sign that God is not finished with you and you have hope in him alone. It is true then that no singular moment can separate you from Christ. Perhaps you have denied Jesus at some point in your life. God is patient and he is kind in his steadfast love and will lead you to himself. Perhaps he's doing that even this morning. Case in point, Peter. Peter had at least three singular incidents of outright denial of Jesus, even speaking against him. If it wasn't too late for Peter, it's not too late for you. It's not too late for that person you've been praying for, for that family member, for your neighbor. But don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. A non-confession is a confession against. And you might be on the slippery slope of permanent denial of the testimony of the Holy Spirit. If you step into eternity having persistently denied and opposed the call and the witness of the Holy Spirit to confess Christ, you will be without hope. But if you confess Jesus, you then have this guarantee that we're all looking for, that Jesus himself, the Son of Man, will confess you before the courts of heaven. Your forgiveness, my friend, will be on display with the nail-scarred hands of the one giving witness and acknowledging you before the angels of God. Make him your pursuit and your life's confession. Then Jesus will confess you in heaven. And this is a great encouragement for us to step forward and to confess him now before men. You know, sometimes we get so worried about whether or not we've committed such a heinous sin that we actually forget to pursue and proclaim. I'm not much of a green thumb, um, but I do love yard work, and I mean that. Don't invite me over to your house to do it. I like yard work in my yard, um, and so that may sound strange. In fact, uh, as we've had the Saturday service over at Edison, um, my day off, I confess, has been Sunday morning, so don't look at me like that, uh, and I joke that I'm the only pastor in Wheaton that cuts his grass on Sunday morning, because it's the only time I have, because Saturday is such a work day. But, you know, every spring when, you, when the grass starts to green again and you feel that rejuvenation to get out in the yard, or maybe not, um, you start to see weeds pop up. You know how to get rid of weeds? There's several ways. You can pull them and pull them and pull them and pull them more and more and more. Make sure you get them at the root. Or you can have somebody come over and spray your yard. Make sure kids stay off your lawn for a couple days. But you know the best way to get rid of weeds is to have a healthy lawn. 
It's to sow good seed. So weeds won't have room to grow. There's no room in the turf for weeds to grow. There won't be room for them to take root. In the same way, you want to make sure that you're not denying Jesus. Spend less time worrying and more time proclaiming. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. Focus on sowing the healthy, eternal seed of the gospel rather than pulling weeds all the time. You want to see the faithful fruit of the Savior's confession of you before the courts of heaven? Acknowledge Jesus before men with your life. And this is why in verse 11, Jesus can confidently say, Then when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So we've been encouraged to acknowledge Jesus before men, to stay away from denial. Now let's see how we can be confident to trust the Holy Spirit to help us in so doing. Well, because Jesus will confess us before the courts of heaven, we therefore should not worry and be encouraged to proclaim him before men, even if we're brought before an earthly temporal courtroom. Why? It's simple. Because we're not alone. In Christ, you are not alone. Are you afraid that you won't know what to say? You have fear about defending yourself? Well, in a supernatural way, The Holy Spirit will help you to know what you ought to say. And that doesn't mean that he will simply help you to win an argument. It's not what this is about. He certainly won't help you to be rude or to be hateful or demeaning in your words. He won't lead you into sin. However, when the time comes for you to give a witness, stand firm, trusting in the witness himself, the Holy Spirit, to help you. There's a couple of ways that you can be equipped to know, to know how to do this. One way is to know what the Holy Spirit has already said. How will you know what he's going to say if you don't know what he's already begun to say through his word? In other words, you want to be prepared to give a witness? Know the witness that the Holy Spirit has already given. Study the Bible. Study his word. Hide his word in your heart so that you won't give in to sinful fear and denial. Another way to be ready is to pray. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray. As we've been walking through Romans 8 this past year, one thing that we've learned is that we know that the Holy Spirit is praying for us. With what? With groanings too deep for words. Join him in prayer. Join him to know him then his voice, his voice won't be so unfamiliar on that day. Last week, Eric Channing was very helpful and he, as he walked us through verses four through seven and talked about why we should fear God more than we should fear men. And if you've read ahead in this chapter, you'll notice that do not fear and don't be anxious are, re- are repeated quite often here. But in fact, it's the most repeated and given command in all of the Bible. Do not fear. Don't worry. And yet, even that command causes us great fear sometimes. I'm afraid that I'm afraid. I'm worried that I'm worried. I fear that I'm fearing the wrong person 
a wrong thing. We look around and we read this passage and we read that not if, but when you are brought before these earthly authorities. And we ask, will I stand for Jesus then? I get that. I get that anxiety. And even if you're not brought before an actual courtroom, you might be judged in the court of public opinion or on social media or around the family table or at the office. It's not as though humanity is lacking for critics and judges. Standing for Jesus can be a difficult thing. But Jesus assures us that we aren't alone and that we, you, I, we can be confident. Just as I'm confident to stand here, I am not alone. It looks like I am, but I am not alone. You will not be alone. He has promised us the Holy Spirit. And whereas before he warns us about rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit, Jesus now invites us to trust the same Holy Spirit for help. And this is the beauty of the fear nots in the Bible, for there are so many. And in just a few weeks, we'll look at chapter 12, 22 through 34, which will be very familiar to many of you, where Jesus says, don't be anxious, but instead seek the kingdom of God. And in scripture, where there is a prohibition against fear, there's always an invitation instead to trust. God does not leave us alone. He doesn't say just stop doing this. He invites us to start trusting. And this is no different. Shift your focus from worry and fear over the temporal and shift it to confession and trust of the eternal. You know, we talk a lot about the gospel around here. Sometimes we can be guilty of attaching the word gospel in kind of an adjectival way that sometimes detracts from its emphasis and meaning. But this is exactly where Jesus is drawing our attention to the good news, to his gospel, to our holy God and his plan for our eternal redemption. This God who has ultimate and final authority over you and over I, and even over these earthly authorities that we've been praying for and that we consider, especially this weekend, whether we acknowledge it or not, he loves us and sent the very one who is speaking these words to his people lest we think we are forgotten. And it is with this perspective, this gospel perspective, that he tells us to fear not because your greatest need has been met in Christ. And perhaps this morning, that's all you need to be reminded of, the simple truth of the gospel for yourself in order that you might proclaim him and his message to others. So what worries you most? It says, don't be anxious. What worries you most and causes you the most anxiety? What is it that worries you about proclaiming Jesus among men, among others? Maybe it's the shift in culture that we've experienced so rapidly in the last uh, many years. Maybe our upcoming election doesn't thrill you. Some of you yourselves are even in public office. You own businesses You run organizations or a part of organizations that quite literally may be brought to court in the not-too-distant future. For you, please know that we as a church and we as a pastoral staff pray for you often towards that end. We want to help each other bring biblical truths to bear in these situations. It's one reason that we've been doing this gospel and culture series. Pastor 
Uh, Tommy Johnston taught on religious liberty this morning. Maybe many of you have come from that. I want to encourage you to go to that in the weeks to come at the 930 hour. But then we look at the global scene and we find it it's somewhat frightening. There are people being killed all over the world doing exactly what we are called to do here, to stand for Christ. Some of us are afraid of being judged just for walking across the street to talk to our neighbors about Jesus. But isn't this exactly why Jesus calls us to set our eyes on the eternal and not the temporal? To seek the guarantee of Jesus' acknowledgement of us before the angels of God rather than to worry about and be anxious about our denial of him here in the temporal? The confession of Jesus, the one that you make before the courts of men, the confession that you make before the courts of men of Christ will ring with eternal justice in the courts of heaven. And even on this, our Independence Day, America being but a toddler in the history of the world, you'll be at barbecues and parades and firework displays celebrating the freedoms that we enjoy and have been blessed with. We're praying for those who are overseas, perhaps some even in your family and circle of friends, who are fighting to keep those freedoms alive, and rightly so, as uh, Jesse prayed just a few moments ago. They're the same freedoms that allow us to worship freely here this morning, for which we are thankful. And it would be very reckless for me or anyone else to stand here in a place like this and prophetically lament the future of our country. Perhaps today or tomorrow you'll be asked to pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. And rightly so, and so we do. We render to Caesar what we ought and we pledge allegiance where we can. But we never forget that Jesus is the Son of Man. And he's been given dominion and glory and an eternal kingdom to which we eternally belong not as a nation that will rise and one day fall. But as Russell Moore has written in his book Onward, this kingdom's advance is set in motion by the Galilean march out of the graveyard. We then should be the last people on earth to skulk back in fear or apathy. We ought also to be the last people on earth to uncritically laud any political leader or movement as though this is what we've been waiting for. We need leaders, we need allies, but we do not need a Messiah. That job is filled and he's feeling fine. We are neither irrationally exuberant nor fearfully isolated. We recognize that from Golgotha to Armageddon, there will be tumult in our cultures, in our communities, and even in our own psyches. We groan against this and we do the good work to hold back the consequences of the curse, but we do not despair as those who are losers in history might For we, in Christ, co-heirs with him, are the future kings and queens of the universe. For Jesus has said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. For centuries, the church has been drawn to statements that crystallize much of what I've been saying and much of what the gospel says. We do this to summarize our beliefs to help us to proclaim what we believe. Sometimes we call those creeds or confessions. We use them often here at College Church to remind us of the eternal, of the biblical truths that we believe together. 
Creeds aren't meant to take the place of Scripture. They don't carry with them the, the authority of Scripture. However, they are helpful for us to know what we believe. Helpful, or helpful for us to proclaim the things that we don't believe. And so to conclude our time this morning, I'd like to end our service a little bit differently than normal with in mind what we've been talking about. I'd like to invite you to look in your worship folder, and there you'll find the Nicene Creed. Its original form was adopted at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. It's, uh, along with the Apostles' Creed, we are reminded simply by its historical longevity and its importance that we are connected to this eternal kingdom that was started long before us and will continue after us, barring Christ's glorious return for which we pray comes quickly. And so I'd like to invite you to stand as we read this together. And as we do, be reminded that this is our calling as a follower of Christ before this world, to confess him as Lord. But it is also our comfort to know that we are not alone. Christian, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, from God, from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets, We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.